and you're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff Milo, and joining me on the podcast today is Joel Stone, curator emeritus at the Detroit Historical Society and author of the new book, 100 Years of the Detroit Historical Society. That's the title that tells you exactly what the book is about. In fact, we recorded this podcast on the actual 100th anniversary to the day, which is December 15th, 1921. And since its founding in 1921, the Detroit Historical Society has been dedicated to safeguarding the history of our region so that current and future generations of Metro Detroiters can better understand really our ongoing story, understand the people, the places and events that have helped shape our lives. And this book, 100 Years of the Detroit Historical Society, which is out on Wayne State University Press, was written by Joel Stone, who was recently the senior curator uh, at the Detroit Historical Society until he retired, also has a background in archival research. And in his book, he is capturing in words and photographs the little known story of the people who have been telling Detroit stories and preserving its material culture for the last century. But it's not a given. Uh, the in, in enthusiasm and the support for it is just an historical society is is not a given. It's a, it's an ongoing, I guess you could say, struggle to make sure that it is well funded, to make sure that it has uh, a, a decent location, a home, a place to store all their artifacts. And then there is the ongoing effort to make sure that the public is also enthusiastic about it and has a way to interact with all these artifacts and a way to see themselves in the stories that are represented on the walls and in the displays of this historical society. If you've ever visited this building, I I know that you remember it well, just as I do all of the old interesting artifacts that they have in there from from cars to the old actual replicated streets of Detroit from the late 1800s that are in the basement. It is a wonderful place to visit, but this is a wonderful book that talks about all of the, well, it really does tell the story about all the people who have been putting their effort in, many of them volunteers, to sustain the historical society. So we're here to talk about that. We're going to talk a lot about the importance of historians, the importance of librarians, and even also the importance of journalists. So we're all really talking about storytelling here today with Joel Stone and his book, 100 Years of the Detroit Historical Society. In the the case of any research book, there's a lot of tedium to it. There's a lot of digging to find things. There's a lot of dead ends. You know, that's that's just kind of part of the process. Mm -hmm. But then again, you know, you run across just wonderful gems of information, things that you didn't know. And I had the advantage I'd been working with the society for 15 years. And so I kind of I had a pretty good idea of the background you know, the history of the organization. I knew many of the folks who had been in my position or other positions prior to my arrival. So I was able to talk with them and kind of get the, you know, the boots on the ground um, information. And that was most helpful. Having those people be very willing to help was always great. And that's rewarding. Sure. You know, you always, you always put the book to bed and we put it to bed about a, about a year ago now. And then you find new information. You try to sneak in until the thing actually goes to press. Mm-hmm. And and there's always, you're always worried that, you know, what did, what did I get wrong? What did I put in there that is, <laughs> that is not correct? And, you know, you base it on the best information available. Unfortunately, with the society, and, and this isn't unusual for historical organizations, um, they're probably worst at keeping their own story. 
Uh-huh. Um, you know, so many, many of the, 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 the really laborious things, meeting minutes, um, you know, you, they hold on to them for seven or 10 years and then they throw them in a dumpster and boy, I wish I had that dumpster. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's start uh, a little bit with, uh, you know, I, I'm not asking you to really just re-explain the entire opening of, of the book, but I think it's worth noting that you... First of all, I think it's worth noting that we're, you and I are here chatting on what I think is almost to the day, the 100th anniversary of the meeting, the first meeting in the Detroit library to get the conversation started, if I'm not mistaken. I believe it was nope. December 15th. It was December 15th, so yeah. it would be, tomorrow's the, the big 100th anniversary. <laughs> um, and it really was... Um, it was an interesting time in Detroit. Of yeah. course, in the 1920s, Detroit was a boom town. Um, but if you really look into the 1920s, and of course, that included prohibition and all the right. big buildings that we know and the booming automobile business and consolidation. And Very recently um, after World War One, just after really. Oh, sure. But it really was the 19-teens that set the tone for that whole thing. You know, we didn't become the automobile capital in the 20s. We became the automobile capital by 1915. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that money and, and that was all based on the fact that we had this booming manufacturing industry here starting in the 1880s and 1890s. So mm-hmm. that it's, you know, there's a whole culmination of history that brings us up to that. Um, and part of that is that by the 1920s, we had a, a group of, and it was gentlemen to begin with, a group of gentlemen that understood that we had an important history and we really were not telling it. Um, we were one of the last organizations, um, you know, in the, in the country. Uh, Cincinnati had a historical society 75 years before Detroit did, um, partly because Detroit had the Historical Society of Michigan, um, now the Michigan Historical Society. Um, you know, we had that almost the first. Sure. Uh, we were certainly the first in the old Northwest and probably 12th or 13th in the country. Um, so that was based in Detroit. That kind of covered our bases, but we didn't have a Detroit Historical Society until the 1920s, and that was relatively late. Yeah, and the, this book goes into how there is a, a struggle, really, for those first 15 or 20 years to even really generate uh, an adequate amount of interest, even in in supporting this. And you also set the terrain that. There were lots and lots of social clubs and cultural clubs around and nothing yet for history. And here we were 120 years after being founded and and nothing, no really concerted effort to to do anything like this before. Which was an interesting thing. And you're right. It was a it was a city of clubs, um, not unusual across the country, not unusual in Europe either. Um, It was a time before we had television, radio. It's just just starting to grow. Um, so people made their own fun. They, you know, they very often belonged to singing clubs or art clubs, uh, but there were sports organizations all over the city. Um, there were, you know, lots of theater groups and history groups and political or, or, or patriotic organizations. Again, as you mentioned, after World War One, we kind of you know, that really helped kind of solidify the United States as a powerhouse, mm-hmm. um, you know, something that we carried into World War Two. But there were a lot of other distractions. And you're right, there was nobody who was really picking up the history of the city. And these gents, 
Um, a fellow named Clarence Burton, history fans out there, library fans out there know the Burton Historical Collection. And he had donated that to the, the city in 1915. And by 1921, the city has now invested in a beautiful new library on Woodward Avenue with its own space to house the Burton Historical Collection, which was all about Detroit uh, paper-based uh, research material. Uh, be it church records or company records or family records or military records, the Burton was really, really good at collecting that material. Clarence Burton, that was his hobby, and he had the money to be able to invest. He had booksellers in Europe looking for material. Um, so it was really a wonderful uh, collection of stuff. And the Detroit Historical Society was kind of formed to help promote that, to have lectures, to have people in and tour the facility and understand what the resources were. And so it really started as a, as a small kind of a caretaking organization mm -hmm. that had social gatherings and lectures and then eventually started to collect stuff. Right. Because the Burton collected paper, somebody had to collect the dresses and the coins and, you know, the, the muskets and all of the other ephemera that goes with a, a, a history as, as deep as Detroit's. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the Detroit Historical Society became the repository for those objects. And we still are. We've got an incredible collection of, of about a quarter of a million things uh, that the city's been collecting for years. But back then it was it was relatively small and it was housed in an office 24 stories up in the Barlam Tower. That's one of the Cadillac things people Tower. can learn. I mean, that's something I learned, and I think maybe some other readers will learn, is that its first formal home is in a skyscraper, and it is the highest museum you could imagine. <laughs> well, and it, you know, it wasn't the best situation. Right. Uh, it was kind of a stopgap. Um, J. Bell Moran was kind of the guy. He was a real estate fellow in, in skyscrapers. And he had the the ability to you know find the right space at the right price, and get the mm -hmm. support and get mm -hmm. it in there. Yeah. Um, but and again, raising money it was it was really tough. I mean, we had the, the eventually there were more women involved. There was a, a women's organization that was associated, and you know when they do a fundraiser, if they raise fifteen dollars, that was considered a huge success. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but it didn't go come anywhere near paying the rent on an apartment building or a, 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 an office in a skyscraper in booming downtown Detroit. Which, which we're we're going to get to. Um, I just want to talk about that. This book is. A movie it, it has a really good opening scene as far as i'm concerned because it opens basically <laughs> in a library and uh there is a librarian present at the meeting i believe it's gracie crum crum gracie crum yeah and she's, and she's taking notes un, unsung hero yeah yep. no there's two unsung heroes that i want you to talk about specifically first the librarian okay. gracie yep. yep and then a journalist george stark uh so my you know i'm I have a background in journalism and I work in a library. So here I, I saw librarians and journalists were involved early on. Well, I guess George Stark comes around at a pivotal moment. Maybe you could talk about that. Well, he does. Um, and, and boy, you couldn't have two more disparate people uh, <laughs> from a personality standpoint. Um, Gracie Crum, Miss Gracie Crum, she almost always had the Miss in front of her name. Um, spent her life dedicated to the Burton collection. She grew up right next door to, to Clarence Burton and his family. She knew Agnes, his daughter. 
Um, and, and she really dedicated herself to that. She lived right across the street from the library um, in the uh, Park Shelton. It changed name several times, but today it's the Park Shelton. Um, so, you know, she had a quick walk to work. She hung out at a couple of the local clubs that were down there um, and, and really kept to herself. Very private person, but very, very dedicated to the collection and initially the society. It's her notes. It's her, her kind of brief history of the society that was the basis for a lot of the information that I was able to chase down as a result. Um, the opposite of that is George Stark. And George was the, the senior editor of the Detroit News at the time, uh, a real uh, hail fellow well met. He was outgoing. He was personable. He was brilliant, as Gracie was, um, and, and knew all the movers and shakers in town. Mm -hmm. And the society had gotten to a point where it really was kind of treading water. They mm -hmm. had tried to start a couple of uh, initiatives that, that just never got off the ground. And they'd weathered they, the depression and they weathered the depression just barely, barely. Um, you know, but they would they would have little fashion shows in their their spot in Barlam Tower. They would go out to the state fairgrounds and show off some of the material they had. But that's about all they did. And Stark stepped up and said, you know, there is no city in the Midwest that has such a deep, deep history and is doing so little about it. And he decided to make it happen. And he got a couple of real solid allies. He hired Henry Brown to be the director. Um, he got uh, Leonard Simons was on board, who was a, an advertising and marketing fellow. And there was a whole not, another cadre of group people. But, but George Stark was the center of that. And he was able to kind of get everybody moving in the right direction and raise the money. And more importantly, and this is where kind of the Detroit Historical Society gets its its broader family. Mm -hmm. I mean, our initial family was with the Burton Historical Collection. And, you know, those two kind of grew together. Um, but then George Stark realized that really the city should be the one funding and promoting this whole thing. And, you know, got a resolution on the ballot and got support from city council. And they formed the Detroit Historical Commission, which was kind of an overarching uh, board of four people who watched over the Detroit Historical Department. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, the society now has, you know, a bigger brother in history. And yeah, they kind of take a back seat. The society becomes a fundraising arm. It becomes a membership arm. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it does promotion. It puts on programs and events. But it was really the Detroit Historical Department that got the museums built, that put in the exhibits, that formed the collection and really, really grew the collection to what it is today. Yeah. And, you know, you can't you can't tell the story of the society without telling the story of the city departments that really got it formed. And George Stark was was the guy who made that all happen. Museums, uh, historical societies, and even libraries to an extent um, only continue existing because there's public support, which is uh, a big part of this book. And what is especially rewarding about reading this book is beyond maybe going into the, the physical brick and mortar building today and maybe reading a brief paragraph placard that sums up its history, we get to start this book before any historical society exists whatsoever. It's uh from nothing to to all of this and so much of the part of the book is how do we how do we encourage that that buy-in that support from the city and from the from the residents so could you talk about how this becomes not only just a 
you know, a rundown of the chronology of what happened to the historical society, but how it's really the narrative of it being, it's one thing to say, hey, we should start a historical society. The next big thing is, what should our goals be? That's such a big question for a historical society to, to ask itself. And it has to figure it out along the way. I think this book does a great job of showing that. What should our goals be? What does the the public expect our goals to be? Uh, you know, and at what point do we let them in and maybe touch these things? Interactivity is very important. Could you talk about that development, that narrative that goes on in this book? You know, what, uh, what is the goal? You you've hit this on the head, and and really the the story that is told in the book is kind of a, a, a changing spirit of expectations. Mm-hmm. You know, initially there were none because right. nobody had a historical society. But over time, they've tried to adjust and jigger the, um, you know, the, the, the business model to adapt to what people are looking for. And initially it was kind of, it, you know, what they, in the museum world, they call it the, the cabinet of curiosities. You know, early museums were literally just cabinets, uh, display cases that had stuff in them, right. you know, a narwhal tusk or, you know, uh, George Washington's wooden teeth. Right. You know, it was just stuff. Um, and over time, people expected a little more. They wanted a lecture. Tell us about George Washington's teeth. They wanted um, some interpretation. You know, why were teeth made of wood? They expected a little bit more. And over time, as you say, they want to be more involved. They want to get in and touch. They want they want to be part of the story. And right. frankly, um, in the last, geez, 20 years, even 30 years, we have seen the museum world really adapt to being more uh, more community-based, mm-hmm. more interactive, more uh, addressing what the community is interested in. More digital. You know, we've, we've, oh, and we've said, you know, if, if you want people to come into your museum, they need to see themselves yeah. in your museum. They need okay. to see your, their words on your wall. They need to see their stuff in the, in the display cases. And that doesn't mean something from, you know, five generations ago, an old white guy who might have been mayor for a little while. You know, that's not what they need to see. They need to see their parents' story, their grandparents' story. Um, And that isn't necessarily always the prettiest or or happiest story. There was a time in the 50s, uh, especially following World War II, um, you know, World War II had been tough, but we came out victorious. So there was a big, big, uh, you know, kind of uh, patriotic theme running through all of America. I mean, Disney played on it. Everybody played on that. And, you know, that that filtered into the museum world. And there was there was a lot of uh, real rah-rah stuff going on. And we didn't necessarily tell the, the bad stories or the mm-hmm. tough stories. Mm-hmm. And over time, we've had to learn to do that. And I think people have reacted. They've they've come they've come more into understanding the value of history museums as places where people gather much like libraries they're safe spaces and unfortunately when the library institutes of the united states uh, most importantly the american alliance of museums does surveys they find out that that museums and libraries are some of the most trusted spaces we have in the country and yet when it comes to funding and and within the the public you know public uh, institution world whether we're talking about art museums or zoos uh, science museums and things like that um, you know there are 50% of those are are history 
museums. Right. And but the funding is not 50 percent. People have a lot easier time giving to a zoo. You know, when the zoo puts a picture of a baby panda on their brochure, people will step up. Right. Uh, the Humane Society, um, you know, many of these organizations will get uh, far greater funding than the history organizations sure. get. And libraries, unfortunately, fall into that same category. Um, yeah. they, they, they trust us, but they think we're all set. They think the government is paying for it. And that hasn't been the case in this country or, in, frankly, in Europe, Asia, um, if, in a while. Well, uh, libraries everywhere, uh, historical societies, museums are always keen to be demonstrating their value. And I think this book does that. That's just one thing I have to say there. But going back to telling the hard stories or addressing those hard stories, you something you mentioned after World War II, I think that 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 is also kind of brought up in the book because we, as we're telling this history of the Detroit Historical Society from 1921 onward, you are also dipping into Detroit history in general. We have the rebellions in 1967, and I do see that we that the Historical Society realizes that it has to be, it can't just hold old things from the 1800s. It has to be responsive to not even not even just world events, but literally local events that are happening right outside its its door. It seems to be that comes into the consciousness of the Historical Society. Like things are happening to Detroiters, we have to tell these stories. Well, and we we try to learn from from the past. I yeah. mean, in every organization, every corporation, we always try to learn from our mistakes. And not to say it was a mistake, but after the '67 rebellion, um, the historical society did not make an effort to collect material about that. Mm. That was something that n n nobody really wanted to talk about. Right. Um, and and you know, on on any level, on any side from any demographic it wanted to be it wanted to be put in the past and move forward and detroit has always been good at moving forward right. um you know we've torn down many of our neighborhoods to build bigger neighborhoods or big build bigger buildings um we're, we're good at moving on and we did that um so when we went to tell the 67 story at the 50th anniversary uh it was it was kind of slim pickings we mm -hmm. had to go out into the community mm -hmm. to get those stories and after 50 years people were willing to talk we put together a great oral history uh program that collected over 300 oral histories specifically about that mm -hmm. it helped inform an exhibit it helped inform an educational uh component that we had out there it it we we did community outreach we helped with uh build some parks in the city you know not not the way we wanted to build them but the way the community wanted to build them mm -hmm. we learned those things and then when we kind of had a, a return to uprising over the last couple of years um uh based on again police uh, issues with the community which is what got 67 launched we were much more concerned about collecting some of that information, collecting, uh, you know, uh, photographs and and stories about uh, people pushing back mm -hmm. and, and have those. So that in 50 years, when somebody wants to tell that story, we now have that in the collection that the curators of the future can work towards. So, you know, you, you, you try to you try to adjust as you go. And I think that's what the book is all about. Mm -hmm. the, the people before me. Um, we're adjusting to situations on the ground, situations in the economy, um, you know, situations in, in the, the demographics of the city, which changed drastically. Oh, yeah. Uh, they were they were constantly kind of re retooling the machine to make it work better for the constituents. Oh, 
Well, this is a, this is the, the narrative of a series of tiny or large wake up calls that be that the historical society seems to have of like, oh, wait, mm, we weren't doing what we should have there. Oh, wait, this this making changes as as we go. And also this ongoing narrative of this, which you touched on, you can't just say, well, we're a historical society now we are in this building, we are now invincible and will be here in perpetuity. Uh, this has sometimes gone on a wing and a prayer or sometimes needed George Starks to step in or the right people to come in at the right time to say, this is important, this is necessary. So uh, that's what I well, find so fascinating did. about your book. So, and Well, thanks. And, and that's very insightful. You, you clearly read the book, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and it, it didn't take, it was, it was great. Um, kind of catching up with some of those people, either virtually through some of their writings, uh, their activities, the things they left us, but also talking to some of the folks um, who had been involved in the society back in the 80s, back in the 90s. Um, and, and fortunately, some of the folks who started, shoot, there were a couple of the folks started with the society or with the Detroit Historical Department back in the 1970s mm-hmm. and were you know still available uh, for consultation. And, and I note them in the book and they're, you know, great friends. Um, and they were willing to give me those stories and they point out that, you know, sure mistakes were made, but they were all well-intentioned mistakes. There weren't, you know, somebody trying to do something wrong. They just realized after they did something that maybe we should have gone in a different direction. And indeed the organization pivoted and went in a different direction. Sure. Um, one of the things that I, it, we haven't brought up and I, and I need to is, you know, when I talk about the Detroit Historical, Detroit Historical Society family, mm-hmm. um, it includes a lot of volunteers, a lot of, uh, you know, early on patriotic organizations. And then, we, you know, folks interested in, in model trains. The mm-hmm. Glancy Train Organization has been helping the society for years. The Black Historic Sites Committee, uh, which got started 50 years ago this year, I mean, has been an integral part of helping us understand what the community needs. We help them with their programming. They help us with our installations, our programming, our events. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a wonderful partnership. And, and some of the organizations have gone by the wayside. Unfortunately, the Historic Memorial Society is no longer around. And the Algonquin Club, which was a big supporter for years, has kind of gone into a suspended uh, situation. Um, but there are many that are still around the, the National Society of Colonial Dames, the DAR, um, the Great Lakes Maritime Institute, which has been around for almost 70 years, mm-hmm. is still very involved in helping the Dawson Great Lakes Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's those community organizations that have been around almost as long as the society that we depend on um, for, you know, helping us out uh, financially, sometimes helping us out with uh, uh, volunteers and, and support. Uh, but but also keeping us, you know, keeping us heading in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very key to remember. I mean, even here in our small town, we have a historical society. It's entirely volunteers. Uh, yep. This is people. It's all a story of people recognizing the importance of this and dedicating their time to it. Um, and, and another thing that I wanted to mention is that this book has lots and lots of photos, too. So you could actually look at some stuff. And um, one of the one of the things that, which is a note of how the Historical Society recognized the importance of education and outreach, but there is the History Mobile, a school bus, uh, 
1968. Um, it's a black and white photo, but it almost looks like it must have been tie dyed colored. <laughs> oh, it was very fancy. I think Peter Max. I think it was uh, oh, it was great. pretty pretty hip at the time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yep, that was that was cool. And there were lots and lots of those. I frankly, one of the hardest parts about writing the book was narrowing down which photos to use. Yeah. Um, first I had to find them and some of them mm -hmm. were buried pretty deep. There were yeah. places I got into that even after 15 years I had not seen before. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was great fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then you get those and you know, I, we could have done a whole, you know, coffee table book of just the cool photographs. Um, instead I had to narrow them down to, I, I think there's 25 or so in there mm -hmm. and, you know, get the, get the captions right. And, and, you know, th that part was the tough part, but narrowing them down, what a joy going through all those oh, yeah. pictures, seeing all the different things they had done and seeing the ways, again, the way the interpretation on the wall has changed over time, you know, from simple didactic panels and things you can't touch to very exciting, very colorful, um, you know, exhibits. Of course, production techniques have changed so much in the past 30 years uh, that there are things we can do that they never could have done back then. Mm -hmm. It was just it wasn't financially feasible, but it wasn't physically possible right. for a lot of those things. And now it's it's uh, uh, the things we're able to do with uh, uh, with video and exhibits and, you know, uh, some virtual stuff, story collecting, uh, the use of oral histories at the touch of a button. I mean, there's so many cool things that we can integrate into an exhibit. It's It was fun to kind of watch that progression happen. Yeah. And we should note it's an ongoing story, you know. This Absolutely. is a historical society on the move and will intend to progress and come up with new ideas and new ways to engage and new ways to tell contemporary history simultaneously with our Oh, I guarantee history. there's there's big plans afoot oh, yeah. with the Detroit Historical Society. Great. We're, we're not we're not thinking anything but about the next hundred years. We're not staying in the past. Um, That's it. You could say. Uh, so I think that, you know, I'll recommend this book because it really makes you appreciate the ongoing efforts of Historical Society volunteers, archivists, and librarians too, because while we are all moving forward and we are all, you know, so connected to our phones and always thinking about the present and the future, you are all out there being hyper aware of what might be important to keep for the future? What could what could, what's happening now? What is important for our story? And I think that it's a it uh, it can be an exhilarating job. It could also be uh, a task, an exhilarating task, uh, but also an, a very anxious task of deciding what what is important. But you're but we appreciate you doing that work. We appreciate well, the Detroit Historical Society. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Jeff. And I know as a, as a librarian, I'm frankly, I'm married to a librarian. I have a great respect for libraries and librarians. And, you know, you understand that you, I, I can tell just by talking to you, you love your job. Absolutely. But there are days when it's a job. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I always say I had one of the best jobs in town um, and and it was great. I had a had a blast during my career. Um, but there were some days when you got up in the morning and it was a job. Sure. You know, it's it's it, it, and you push it forward. You know what the mission is. You know what you want to do. And and the, the bottom line is you want to get people excited about their own history, yep. about their past. Yep. And the deeper, the more they understand about it, the more excited they get. So yeah. it's, it's a lot like books. Yeah. You know, if you can get people to start reading and understanding, the more excited they get about what's in your building. So terrific. Joel Stone, thank you so much. Curator, I never get this word right, Emeritus, Curator Indeed, Emeritus yep. at the Historic yep. Historical Society and 
100 Years of the Detroit Historical Society is the book on Wayne State University Press. Thank you so much, sir, sir, for joining us. Jeff, I really appreciate the time. Thank you. And that was our chat with Joel Stone, Curator Emeritus at the Detroit Historical Society. That is a new book, 100 Years of the Detroit Historical Society, out on Wayne State University Press. More info is available at DetroitHistorical.org. We'll have that link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to another episode of A Little Too Quiet. It's the Verndale Library podcast brought to you by the friends of the Verndale Library. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each episode is by a local musician known as Sunset. If you want to support this podcast, you could go to FerndaleFriends.org. You could like or leave a review or just follow us. Maybe even just tell a friend about us. If you liked this episode, if you liked our discussion of uh, historical societies and librarians, share it to social media. It would help us find new listeners. We'll be back next week with more. Thanks again for listening.